I think there are barriers to science a lot that that aren't spoken at. So my mentorship work is really about reducing those barriers to for students that are aren't maybe those that have been thought of of traditional scientists. So I do a lot of outreach that's focused on on women and minorities in science. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. One of my favorite parts about creating this podcast is that I get to find out about all these careers that are a combination of pathology and something else. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Sanders. Dr. Sanders is the co-director of the Pathobiology graduate program at Brown University. And today, we'll talk about pathobiology and about this program. We'll learn about some of her research and her involvement with ASIP and women in pathology. All right, here's Dr. Jennifer Sanders. I want to kind of go through your sort of educational career first, uh, and then we're going to get into some of the other things that you've been doing. So let's let's start back in college. I know you studied biology, and this is interesting to me because I studied biology as well. So I'm curious at that time, like, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do in the field? Because for me, I, I really didn't. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do in the field of biology. I knew that it was the field that interested did me the most. I always liked learning new things, solving puzzles, and that was a field. Biology encompassed that. For me, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I'm a first-generation college student. No one in my family was involved in science, so I really didn't know what the career paths were in biology. So I did a lot of shadowing on the medical side, physical therapy, and it wasn't until my junior year that I started doing research with a faculty member that the field of research opened up to me. Okay. What, what type of research were you doing then in your junior year? I was looking at cellular differentiation and AML cells and how myeloid cells would, and hematopoietic cells would differentiate and then what would happen in cancer. So we were actually studying some of the differentiation pathways that occurred normally in, in hematopoietic cells to have an idea of, of what was going wrong in, in leukemia. Oh, I see. Okay. That, that sounds interesting. So then, I, I like, at the time, had you always intended to go on to, to the PhD, or did that come later as you were, maybe as you were doing this research? That came later, I would say, by the time I finished that summer internship, I knew that I enjoyed research, but I still didn't know what the careers were that you could do with a degree in biology that were research related. I didn't have any advice in terms of, of family members who could guide me. You know, they were thinking like, oh, you, you may be in, in a lab running blood samples or, or still really on the clinical path because it was all that we knew. And when I was in my senior year, I was applying for jobs mainly and happened to be in the science library hanging out and a, a bunch of my classmates and peers were thinking about graduate school. And it was an informal conversation about what they were doing, just discussing graduate school. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a great option. I'll apply for jobs and to graduate programs. 
and see what happens. And I wound up being accepted to multiple programs and went on the interviews. And, and that was, I think, when the process of, of doing a PhD and what you could do with research really started to broaden my horizons. And in the summer between college and graduate school, I did a summer internship at Pfizer in their drug safety division in a genetic toxicology lab. And that was when I started to see the differences between industry research, academia, and the more clinical aspect of biology and medicine. Okay. So was this kind of the time that you sort of discovered uh, molecular biology, cell biology, and uh, biochemistry? Was that, and, and like, then you decided that's the program that you wanted to go into? It was. So I applied to PhD programs that were multidisciplinary in nature. I really liked physiology. I like trying to understand what's happening on the molecular side in terms of physiology and also disease. And for me, having sort of a what I would think of as an options open graduate program that combines all the fundamentals of molecular biology, cell biology, and biochem, I thought that that would really prepare me to pursue a broad range of studies in in my postdoc or in my future career choices. So I really wanted a, a graduate program that was interdisciplinary where I could mix physiology with molecular and cell biology and biochem. Did you ever consider medical school at that time? I didn't consider medical school. I knew that I didn't have the ability to to compartmentalize speaking with the patients. I did a lot of shadowing of physicians and, like I said, physical therapists. And I found that I took everything home with me. So for me, I didn't have the resiliency that was needed to leave the emotion behind as I would walk out. So the medical side really didn't seem like a viable career for me. Okay, that that makes sense. I I can understand that. All right, so you go on, you're you're studying, uh, working on your PhD. And even then, like, what did you intend to do, like, after after you you earned the degree? So after I earned the degree, I was really thinking along the lines of a traditional postdoc and a law and going into the academic side. I enjoyed my time at Pfizer, but the pharmaceutical industry didn't feel like a great fit for me. I really enjoyed the teaching aspect. So I knew that I wanted to go on and be be able to combine research and teaching. I love my time at at went to a small liberal arts college. I love the community feel of the college. You know, if you walked down the hallway, everyone knew who you were. They knew your name. They knew what you were doing, what your interests were. And I, I really enjoyed that environment. So when I was doing my PhD, I took opportunities to expand my teaching portfolio so that I would be prepared to join, maybe have an own small lab at a liberal arts college was what I was thinking at the time during my PhD. And I, I kind of want to get into your teaching experience in, in, a, in a little bit. But first, you, you mentioned the postdoc and you did a postdoctoral fellowship in gastroenterology. How did this come about? So while I was deciding 
postdocs. Um, at this point in my life, I was two parties. I was married at the time with a husband who had a, a great job and was stuck geographically unless we wanted to really split. And that was something that I neither one of us wanted to do. He had a great career that was taking off. So he was geographically bound and we didn't want to live apart. So that meant I was geographically bound and we lived in Southeastern Connecticut. So there weren't a lot of opportunities for, for postdocs at, at university that would be in our geographical area. So I knew that I was coming up against that. And I, at the time when I was looking for a postdoc, I, I stayed in my PhD lab a couple months, finishing off, getting ready to publish a paper for my thesis. And an opportunity opened up to apply for um, a T32 in gastroenterology that was headed up by Jack Wands at Brown and Rhode Island Hospital. So I, I spoke to them, discussed research projects, and that was how I wound up with a postdoctoral fellow for the T32 was a T32 training in gastroenterology. And I, I really extended my PhD studies during that time. So you mentioned that the research project. So what was it that you were, you were doing in gastroenterology? So the research project that I had focused on in my PhD was really looking at the proto-oncogene uh, CMIC and looking at its role in fetal and adult liver development. And then for a postdoc, I extended that by looking at liver-specific knockouts of MIC and looking at its function in the adult liver in terms of regeneration and also protein synthesis and growth and a model of a non-proliferative growth in a nutrient deficient model. So we could starve rats for 48 hours. You see a decrease in liver weight, uh, a decrease in liver protein, and then we can refeed those animals after 48 hours. And it's a model of, of hypertrophy instead of cell proliferation. So we are comparing the role of, of MIC in proliferation versus hypertrophy. Okay. And, and the work in, in liver research and regeneration, that, I mean, that's something you're still doing these days, which we'll get into a little later. All right. Back, back to the teaching aspect, though. So, like, when, when did this start? When did you realize you were interested in teaching? Like, at what point in your, your educational career were you? I was interested in teaching very early. I think even when I entered the PhD program, when I was in college, I worked as a teaching assistant, setting up various labs. I always enjoyed setting up the labs. I enjoyed TAing and the interactions with, you know, the freshmen and underclassmen at the time. When I entered my PhD, we were required to do a semester as a teaching assistantship as part of our training. I really enjoyed that time. I we were I also got involved at Brown. They, they have a Sheridan Center for Teaching and Learning. So I started taking workshops on teaching with the center, everything from developing a, a syllabus all the way through writing a teaching philosophy statement. And that kept my interest in, in teaching alive. 
I worked as a time with the Sheridan Center as a teaching consultant where you film other graduate students, even postdocs teaching, and you review with them and critique their presentation styles. So I was doing something that I had a finger in teaching, I think, all along while I was doing my PhD studies. And then at the end of that, Brown runs a pre-college program during the summer where high school students come onto campus to take an intensive course. And when I started my postdoc, I developed a course in cancer biology and taught that to high school students that came on. So that was the first time that I was in charge of everything from course design through teaching, and I loved it. So that really cemented my, my interest in being able to combine the teaching and the research. Okay, I see. All right. So let's go through that to kind of the the path to the, the position you have now, which is co-director of the pathobiology graduate program at Brown. How did, like, what, what was the pathway there? So the pathway was I joined the pathobiology program as a trainer, and I really became involved in the program. So if a, you know, request went out for faculty to judge posters or talks at retreat. I always volunteered if they, you know, if faculty were looking for a guest lecture and of course I was happy to come in and guest lecture. I was serving on student committees and it was really just about, you know, signing up for, I would say, being an active faculty member in a graduate training program. I was on the admissions committee I joined the steering committee for the graduate program and it, the opportunity to become co-director really evolved through all of the, the prior commitments to the graduate program. And as I served in those positions, I, my commitment to the program became obvious to the other faculty and to the co-directors of the program at the time. So when one was ready to step down, my name was put forth as being a good candidate to take over as a co-director. As as co-director, what are some of like what are some of the job duties? I guess is what I'm trying to get at. What, what like what do you do in, in that position? Sure. So as, as co-director of the program, we are the source for for really having the graduate students come on campus. Um, have the program be cohesive. So as co-director, we are the primary advisor for all of the first-year graduate students in terms of coursework, doing their laboratory rotations to cement their thesis labs. We continue to advise them during early in their second year through their preliminary exam. We also serve as really the conduit from all the graduate school requirements. So interpreting the graduate school policies, the requirement, and sharing those back to the faculty and the students in the program. We're also involved in all of the program oversight. So that's budgetary, it's scheduling all the the program events, the seminar series, the retreats that we have, student activities, there are a lot of faculty and staff involvement on that level in terms of committees for nominating and 
recruiting seminar speakers, but we are really there to make sure that the students are meeting all the requirements of the program. We are also there as a source of support for the students if they have questions or concerns about any aspect of their their training, whether it's finding the the right lab home for them for their PhD studies, whether it's when they're moving up in their PhD and they they hit that sort of normal down cycle that happens once they pass their prelims in room um, in year three or four, if it's mediating concerns that they have about the faculty mentors, we're involved in all of those aspects of student support as well. Okay, that sounds like a lot of work. Um, <laughs> it is. It's a lot of work to to have a program where you know the students and faculty are all happy and and that it, it runs well. Luckily, the pathobiology program when I came on as DGS was in a really good place, and it's really just fallen on me and my co DGS uh, Amanda Jamison to keep the program running smoothly. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk with you was because the program is in pathobiology, and I, I want to kind of understand what is the distinction between pathobiology and pathology. Can you kind of speak to that? Yeah, so pathobiology is really studying the molecular mechanisms of disease. So the students in the program are involved in, in understanding disease pathogenesis, uh, molecular mechanisms of disease, a disease progression, um, new treatment avenues. And when I think of pathology, I think of a difference in the training. So in, in pathology, you become an expert in the discipline of pathology itself, right? Being looking at microanatomy of tissues and organs and all of that is involved in understanding progression of disease and disease pathogenesis, our students in the program may or may not develop that skill set when they're in the program. The vast majority don't have formal training in pathology, and they will probably think of themselves when they graduate as experts sort of in the field that the research project were in. So we have four tracks in the program. There's toxicology, environmental pathology, infection and immunity, cancer biology, and aging. So some students will graduate thinking that they're really an infectious disease researcher. Others will consider themselves cancer researchers. Almost none of them will identify as a pathologist. Okay, that, that helps. That makes more sense. Although it seems like with the, with the four tracks that you mentioned, I mean, there is quite a bit of overlap between that and, and what's done in, in pathology. Oh, there's absolutely overlap. And most of the student projects do involve pathology. So a lot of the students are working with in vivo models or they're working with human tissue. Some of the labs have the expertise in-house to understand the pathology. The students may take a course or they may be taught by their PI. A lot of the Laboratories have active collaborations with pathologists, either at one of the local hospitals or with a comparative pathologist where we're sending slides back and forth. My laboratory is a great collaboration with a comparative pathologist since we're looking at both animal models and human tissues. 
Okay, well, since you mentioned your laboratory, let's get into the research that you're doing, because this goes back to, I I think, the work that you started uh, in your postdoc fellowship with liver progenitor cells. Now, as far as that, I mean, are these basically stem cells that we're talking about? So there's there's really no identified liver or stem cells. So when I first started, we were looking at, at oval cells, which are considered facultative stem cells in the liver of I would say an unknown really origin because the liver stem cell hadn't been identified. We quickly grew out of that really to what my lab focuses on today. So I was, during my training, I really focused on developmental biology or what I would consider traits of normal liver physiology. You know, liver regeneration is certainly a a special characteristic of the liver. And I've really switched now to looking more on the liver injury and and applied therapeutic side. So my laboratory right now is sort of pulling from the developmental side and ex- expanding that. So my grad, one of my graduate students who's getting ready to write his thesis has been looking at the special the fetal liver cells from late gestation. They are, in terms of cell signaling, very different from adult hepatocytes during liver regeneration. So they're both highly proliferative, but the fetal cells tend to be mitogen independent. So we looked at that as saying, all right, these cells may have a competitive growth advantage, much like cancer cells do compared to normal adult cells. So we've used a model of liver injury and transplanted those fetal cells into an injured adult liver. And they will take off and repopulate that adult liver and such that by 10 months, they're still proliferating. So the graduate student has really been working on understanding the mechanisms by which these fetal cells can repopulate an adult liver because it's not, if you transplant adult hepatocytes, they may undergo a round or two of proliferation, but then they lose functional differentiation. They'll eventually senesce. So we've been looking at this as trying to understand the cell signaling pathways, the regulation of gene expression that sort of maintain these cells in their fetal phenotype, even though they've been transplanted into an adult organ, and see if there's any information we can pull from that to think of cellular therapies for patients with chronic liver disease that are in liver failure awaiting a transplant. The other aspect of my lab is we have a very robust collaboration with Dr. Heidi Ye at, at MGH, actually looking at using ex vivo machine perfusion of human livers as a way to reduce the amount of discard of, of donor livers that come up for transplant. So these may be grafts that have been found to be marginal. So they're discarded for transplantation, but when you these livers undergo ex vivo machine perfusion, uh, the liver functional, they look like livers that would be viable for transplant. So they, they're maintaining liver function. So we've been working, doing transcriptomics on these livers to try to figure out, can we find biomarkers that can be used to really be able to class these livers into livers that would be functional upon transplantation from those that aren't? And then for the livers that are sort of of intermediate function, 
can we understand the injury that's occurring and can we develop therapeutics to basically prevent the injury or dampen the injury and increase liver function so that these livers would then be viable for transplantation? You know, I think I've heard a little bit about that. There was, I think there was a study done or maybe several about the number of like transplant organs, donor organs that were discarded because they were deemed like not, not viable or not able to be used. So this is in kind of uh, to help with, with that. Is it, am I interpreting that right? Yes, it's to help with that. So about 10% of the organs that come up for transplant are discarded for transplant. And it, it, it's thought that, you know, a, a subpopulation of that 10% would be able to function well in the donor, right? It's about matching the, the right, obviously, recipient with the liver that you have so that they have good transplant outcomes. And a lot of that is, obviously, they're looking at the pathology of the liver. They have some of the functional data, whether or not there's, you know, fat in the liver, What's the ischemic time the organ has undergone? But in the end, it's it's really the transplant surgeon's gut and experience that will take all that information, allow them to make the call. So we're really looking at using a panel of biomarkers that can help with that decision of whether or not to transplant a liver or not. And then the flip side is for the livers that they've decided not to transplant that have, you know, that they they look okay on the the pump, they may not meet the transplant criteria, but is there something we can do to, to rehabilitate those livers so that they would be made to be transplantable? And that's sort of the other goal of the research. So the, the ex vivo machine perfusion has been approved for use in Europe for a while instead of putting the livers in, in static cold storage. And the outcomes look great. It was recently approved in the United States for use also but really not with these marginal livers. It's been looked at as a way to preserve the liver and store them from donor to transplant, as opposed to using uh, the traditional cold storage. Okay, that sounds like a very promising work. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Jennifer Sanders. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Jennifer Sanders on the People of Pathology podcast. You know, one other one other thing about the research you're doing, because I, I was reading through some of your papers, which admittedly are a bit beyond my understanding, but there was one thing I came across. One of them was talking about hepatic cell transplantation rather than yes. rather than like liver like lobe transplantation or, or larger portion of liver. Can you talk about that? Because that sounded sure. very interesting. Yeah. So hepatic cell transplantation is is really an area of research that has sprung out thinking about alternatives to being able to using a whole liver. Because if you could expand these cells in vitro, you you would relieve the stress that's put on, you know, there are, uh, the wait list far exceeds the number of available 
organs. So in in order to meet the the need, the thought is if you have a a cell that you could use for cellular transplantation, you could meet the need of the patients that are awaiting transplant, even if it's just to bridge them until a liver becomes available. So there have been a number of clinical studies that have been done using human cells, either from adult or fetal liver. And these are have most of the clinical uh, trials have been done in patients that have an inborn error of metabolism. So it's, it's not a model of sort of chronic liver disease or liver failure, but it's really using the cells to correct a single gene defect. But when they do these studies with adult hepatocytes, they find that the patients do much better there for a month or two. And then the effect wanes as the adult hepatocytes basically die off. When you transplant the fetal cells in human fetal hepatocytes, those patients are doing well, you know, even out to a year post-transplant. So it looks like the the human fetal cells are are able to provide the function that you would need. Obviously, there are ethical considerations with using the fetal cells, and it's not a, a source of cells, right? It's more scarce than using liver transplants. But if you understand the mechanisms those cells use, that may open up opportunities to program and induce pluripotent stem cell from a patient. So that you can use the patient's own cells and, and use that as a cellular therapy. So I would say that is sort of, you know, the what would be the ideal use of, of cell transplantation. You know, we're a ways off from that yet, mm-hmm. but that, that would be the ultimate end goal that I would look at for hepatic cell transplantation would be to be able to take the patient's cell and be able to reprogram it and then have it restore the patient's liver function. Wow. That's, that, that's really interesting. That's uh, that would be uh, amazing, you know, in the future, if that, if that would work out, I want to move on to something else that you're uh, involved with, and this is the American society for investigative pathology. So first of all, can we talk about uh, like, what is this organization and then how did you get involved with it? Sure. It's a national science society. It's the members. There are some guide in the world pathologists and there are a lot of basic clinical and translational researchers. So it really spans the gamut of very broad science. So I got involved because one of my mentors, Doug Hickson, was a member and the ASIP or ASAP has a large contingent of researchers that are interested in liver biology. So it was a natural fit for me to join the society that had a number of the top liver researchers in it in order to present my own data and get feedback and just network within the group. So when you like joined the, the society and you started getting involved, why was it important for you to like because you're involved in I think two different commit committees at least? Why was it important for you to rather than just be a member, but to actually get involved in committees? I for me, it was it's a it's a great society. It it's a little smaller than some of the other professional science um, science societies that I'm a member of, and I think this 
The thing that sets ASAP apart is the members are very committed to mentoring, to mentoring junior faculty, to mentoring trainees, to help them explore science, learn about different career paths, um, educational opportunities. It was really a society that, yes, there's great science, but for me, what set it apart was the, the mentoring. So when I joined, I was a graduate student and postdoc, and there were a lot of, of senior researchers in the societies that became mentors for me and would literally, you know, take me under their wing at a meeting and walk me around and say, you know, you should really meet this person. You know, there'd be a great collaboration here, or, you know, this is someone that you can send your grants to, to read. And all of that is really necessary to to succeed and, and build up a career. And it was such an, an open collaborative society. And I really, that helped me advance my career. And I really want to pass that down and keep that flavor of the society alive. And, and that's what all of the active members, it's really about not only your research and your science, but serving as a mentor to help others in the field come up through the field. So that really resonated with me. I've, I've always had excellent mentors. I would say I've been blessed with, with very supportive mentors throughout my career that, yeah, I'm still, they still mentor me to this day. And I really want to emulate them because they've meant so much to me and I wouldn't be where I am without that. So that's why I'm so dedicated to the society and for the mentoring. And it's a society that really rewards involvement. So if you want to be involved, you can become involved as a trainee and serve on the committee. And it really helps build leadership skills and it helps you build your scientific reputation and your national reputation. And it it will help you build your career and make you attractive for different career paths or leaderships in, in your own home institution. So that's what, how I really became involved in ASIP. I started serving really sometimes, you know, with the suggestion of someone I'd met in the society, society or sometimes even, you know, a little shove. If I'm saying, you know, I'm not sure that I'm qualified for this. There was always someone there who was willing to say, to give me a shove and and help me through the process. And it's really helped me in my own career. And I want to pass that down. So I got involved in the education committee. I got involved in the membership committee, um, being an, an ambassador or mentor at the meetings where you're assigned a trainee to walk them around the meetings, make sure they're getting the most out of the meeting, introducing them to other scientists that they're interested in meeting. And my role just grew from there. That last thing you just said about walking a new person around and introducing him to others, that's, I feel like that should be done everywhere. That's that's really a great idea. I like that a lot. And, and what you were saying just about the mentorship, I mean, that's so important for no matter what, you know, part of science or medicine that you happen to be in. It's it's important to kind of influence the next generation coming up, like you said. So I love that. That's great. All right, let's talk about then the group called Women in Pathology because this is a part. It's kind of a subgroup of ASIP. Is is that is that right? Am I getting that right? 
Yes, it's a it's I would consider it sort of a special interest group of ASIP. So women okay. in pathology was was really born out of the women members in society wanting uh wanting to support women and really wanting to open doors and and given give women the opportunity, more opportunity to develop in their careers, to gain experience, to have leadership positions, and also to to offer workshops on some of the skills that women may not be as confident in. And some of that may have to do with imposter fears or imposter syndrome, you know, the ability of women to negotiate, being able to provide role models and, and advice and really just a supportive environment for women in science to discuss what their challenges are and what sort of support do they need to be able to be successful in their careers. And that turned into Women in Path. So I serve as part of a leadership team along with three other individuals. It's not just for women. Um, men are welcome to join. We love to see men join and participate in our events. It's anyone who wants to support uh, women in science in the broadest sense. So some we organize workshops um, and webinars on some of the skills that as we pulled our membership that women would be interested in that they feel they need to build. So we've offered seminars on imposter syndrome. We've offered seminars on work-life balance and webinars. We have one coming up on, you know, using social media to, for your, your scientific career. So there, and then we also have informal gatherings where we can sort of meet and create network, form collaborations and, and, and mentor. So there are uh, a lot of events that we have brought together uh, more on the offer. Um, May coming up in May, we'll have, it's been Women in Pathology Month in the society. So that's an opportunity for us to highlight the women scientists in the society, um, tell everyone about their research um, and their accomplishments and really just be recognized for what they've done in, in their career. And I love that. That's great. I will uh, in, I'll include a link to uh, not only ASIP, but women in pathology. Uh, I'll look, include those links in the show notes so people can can check those out and join if, if they like. You know, the right. last the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and you mentioned some of this already as far as the mentorship within, you know, what you do in ASIP. But I, I know you do some work with with high school students and, uh, and other students as well. Can, can you can you kind of tell me about that? Like, what does what this what does this work entail? Sure. So this is really born out of, I think, my own personal relationship to science. And when I was in high school, I I always loved the science classes, but I was I wasn't aware of all the opportunities that there were in science. You know, that I think it's changed now to where when I look at most of the applicants applying to the PhD program, I think, boy, if I was competing with them, I would never get into a PhD program now, right? I mean, my first research experience was a junior in college. And there are so many that have research experiences in high school. As a high school student, I 
you know, I had no idea that that career existed or those opportunities existed. So I think there are barriers to science a lot that that aren't spoken at. So my mentorship work is really about reducing those barriers to for students that aren't maybe those that have been thought of of traditional scientists. So I do a lot of outreach that's focused on, on women and minorities in science or anyone that, that really, it's really about demystifying science for those that, that don't have, you know, personal experience with someone who's in the sciences. So it's about reducing some of those barriers and just saying, hey, this is what science is. It, it's not a mystery. Anyone can do science. Anyone can be a scientist. There's a lot of support and opportunity out there for everyone. So we've I've collaborated with a postdoctoral fellow and their other wonderful graduate students at Brown that have been reaching out to um, local high schools within the Providence area. We will do everything from just having an informal Q&A about how we got into science, what some of the challenges we faced, how do we overcome those. Now that it's been Zoom, I've been walking my computer around the lab just to show them that, hey, this is what a research lab looks like. Uh, we also will design for some of them. Uh, we, especially down in middle school, even elementary school, we design hands-on experiments that we can take into the classroom and and run the students through experiments. We will set them up with scientists who may come in and talk a little about, about their career. They're in, in different areas. There's a high school that's learning about um, imaging right now and cancer research. So I've set up an interventional radiologist that will come in, talk a little bit about his career path, you know, what's a day in his life look like. So it's all of the outreach work is is really about showing students that science is accessible, science is, is fun, and just really introducing them to those concepts. And then also being there to help them develop the skills, whether it's how to write an email to reach out and look for opportunities, it, you know, how to write a personal statement, some of those soft skills that they may not have mm -hmm. someone within their own space to mentor them them through. So we're doing that. I also, you know, coach a robotics team at my son's school that's in grades five through eight. So it it's really about just and for me that it's it's fun. It's and it's rewarding. It's great to go out and you know have something as simple as you know dish soap and a piece of fruit and a little bit of alcohol and show them, Hey, you can extract DNA from this. Mm -hmm. And to see those light bulbs sort of go on is I think the most rewarding part of all of the outreach and the science. Yeah, for sure. That, that, that sounds super rewarding. I, I love that you're, that you're doing that. And it's, you know, you're right. That initial exposure to science and, and like you said, make it accessible. And I think the younger the, the kids are probably probably the better that you know it, the, the, the sooner they have that sort of exposure to science the better off you know the whole field is going to be so that's great I, I love that dr Sanders this has been really interesting to you know to get to get to know you a little bit more and to go through your career and and all of the work that or I guess some of the work that you've been doing we, <laughs> we could we couldn't cover all of it but uh so 
this this has been really interesting. So Dr. Jennifer Sanders, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Big thanks to Dr. Jennifer Sanders. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. We are in fact scientists, we are tissue biologists, and every day we have normal and experimental, you know, experiments by nature, diseases passing in front of us under the microscope. What an extraordinary privilege that is. And if you pay attention to what's in front of you on the slide, inevitably, while you're looking to do your clinical diagnostic work, which is very pragmatic, but you order a special stain and for that tumor, but then you notice something in the non-tumoral liver or kidney or lung or whatever, and you see something that you don't expect. So it might be an immunostained tiny cell away from the portal tract in the middle of the hepatocyte. What is that? It's not a contaminant, it's not an aberration, it's not an accident. If you find something in a human body, it has meaning. You can hear more from Dr. Neil Thies in episode 32. You know, as I was having this conversation with Dr. Sanders, I kept thinking, if I had heard of pathobiology when I was in college, that's probably the field I would be in today because this is all very interesting. I mean, the, the research that she's doing with liver transplantation and liver regeneration, it's fascinating. And that's the kind of thing that could really help a lot of people uh, in the future. Also, I think the work that she's doing with women in pathology is very important. And like I said during the interview, uh, there will be a link in the show notes to women in pathology so you can check it out if you like. And of course, there will be links to everything else we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.